Hey everyone, Carrie Thomas here, assistant producer of Memory Motel. I'm here to tell you, the listeners of this podcast, that Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their services. Here's a book recommendation from the Memory Motel team based off of our previous episodes. If our last episode left you longing to disappear, we recommend Ways to Disappear by Adra Novi. We highly recommend the audiobook, which is available on Audible. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash memorymotel. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash memorymotel for your free audiobook. And I'll be back next week with another recommendation. Enjoy your free audiobook. Every relationship is built on the same grounds. Trust, communication, mutual respect, love. And it doesn't matter what happens in the bedroom. It's the same it's the same thing that should apply to you know any street relationship, any vanilla LGBT relationship, anything. I didn't ask for this. Hey, it's Terrence, and welcome to Memory Motel. That was Eric, the storyteller for today's episode. And this is part three of The Right to Oblivion. Before we start, part one and two are available so please listen to them first if you haven't already. And part three contains a brief scene of sexual violence. It may trigger a person who has had a similar experience, and this episode is not suitable for children. Eric was understandably nervous while telling a story, so you'll hear a scratching sound now and then in the background, which is him trying to calm his nerves. We're not using Eric's last name because he prefers to be anonymous, and I'm grateful that he shared his story with me. Without his point of view, this series would not have hit home as hard. The Right to Oblivion, Part 3. Before I came out, I was convinced that there was something wrong with me. Before Eric came out, he was struggling with cognitive dissonance, trying to hold in his mind two opposing thoughts. The, the two ideas I was holding in my head at the same time were, everything's fine, you'll, you'll meet a girl eventually. And, man, I enjoy jerking off to this, this stuff I'm finding online. The stuff he found online, gay porn, it ran the gamut. From, like, you know, kind of sweet and romantic to, is this a hate crime that I'm watching on film? And I'd seen mostly the stuff at the latter, scarier end. Eventually, there was no dissonance. He came out, and he wanted guidance. I was completely new to the whole thing. But Eric didn't have much guidance. I had one gay friend I knew from a different school who I would see frequently, but he wasn't any help. He's unable to become attracted to someone without like a room of complete silence and like a copy of Proust. Like he's really, (laughs) he's, he's really particular. Eric is particular in his own way, but instead of Proust, this thing is bondage. Well, I mean, I, I like being um, tied down and uh, teased, restrained in some way, and just uh, being held. So I, I kind of had to figure things out by myself. When he moved to a small New York State city for grad school, he finally felt ready to date. But the scene in that city was not his scene. Every time I had gone out to a a gay bar, it always had been really uh, clicky, really insular, 
uh, really appearance focused in places that were uh, loud and uh, you know very sexually charged. So it's 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 like the exact opposite of the environment that I need to become attached to people. With little luck in the real world, he downloaded an app. It's marketed as hooking up, dating, and like a, a social network for gangsters. I, I met a few people who immediately triggered red flags. Uh, the, the app's notorious for having like a bot problem. Eric received a lot of spam at first, but then he eventually found Chris. We had an actual conversation. We talked about family. We talked about our lives, our, our histories, our plans. We joked back and forth. Basically, Eric found what any of us can hope to expect from online dating. At, at the very least, like, flirtatious without being gross. So they arranged a first date. He picked me up on my block. He's somewhere in his early 40s. I'm in my 20s. He has very short hair, but very large hands. Uh, we just had an absurd blizzard earlier that day, so there were just giant banks of snow uh, all through the city. We managed to find a, a parking spot downtown and went to a, a local Mexican place. And Eric ordered nachos. I discovered that nachos are a really good first date food because they take all of the like food-based anxiety out of a meal, you know? You don't have to worry about eating messily or looking kind of gross because they're nachos, and nachos will inevitably betray you if you try to eat them in any other way besides the way nachos are meant to be eaten. It was the first time that I'd felt that someone was actually interested in me for the right reasons. There's a connection there. It felt like I was making a friend, but something a little bit more than that. He, he drove me back to my block. Uh, I hugged him uh, and he went home. I was happy. There was a lightness in my step. I remember smiling as, I, as my uh, overly eager roommate demanded details from me. We talked for a long time online afterwards. We kept up, you know, the communication. Yeah, I would, uh, I'd say it was going well. We were seeing each other fairly often. Um, we were trying things. After four months of dating, Eric's roommate, the one eager to hear the details of his first date with Chris, moved out. Chris had to be out of his place, so he moved into Eric's apartment. I didn't have a red flag about the move-in. Um, I thought it would be, I don't know, easier dealing with a known quantity or something I thought I knew. The first hint that I had that it, it probably wasn't the best idea, I remember uh, coming out to California for a week. Uh, and when I came back, I, I discovered that he hadn't uh, like left the house for a week. He, he hadn't gone to work. There was just a, a pile of cigarette butts. He'd just been brooding in the dark for a week. It was, uh, it was scary. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know who he was when I came home. I just can't remember. And I remember. I can't remember. This. I remember even. 
I do remember he said this. He said, Those stories were the essence of it was like what it was to be alive. Can you trust that? Each time Eric left the apartment for a few days, he'd learned to expect the unexpected. He and Chris had an open relationship, and after a trip with his family, Eric returned to his apartment, ransacked from a party he hadn't known was going on without him. I came back to the, to the house in complete like disarray. Like there were like used condoms everywhere. There was a blender full of like homemade lube. There were there's drug paraphernalia in the bedroom. And, like trash everywhere and he told me that he'd thrown like a 40-ish person sex party in the house over the weekend people coming through for like two or three days i felt violated by having all these people in the house it was just scary like i didn't i didn't know if i could leave the house and like what i would find when i came home anymore chris had been getting progressively worse in his emotional state. Like, I would come home and find that that similar depressive behavior. You know, he just, like, had been hanging out, smoking with the lights off all day. Or he'd ignore me when I came home. Or he would just, like, fly into these crazy mood swings about random things. Eric met Chris in the winter. They moved in together by spring. The summer was unpredictable. And then it was fall. September was just a terrible month. I mean, I'd, I'd like walk in to like grad school to the medical lab and work all day in an environment that wasn't super safe because just earlier that year I'd been told that being out was unprofessional. I'd walk home and I'd not know which Chris I was going to get when I opened the door. And more often than not, it was a, a version of him that was not the one I'd come to know. That fall, Chris was eager to introduce Eric to a friend of his who lived nearby. It was beautiful. It was a, it was a really nice place on the Hudson. You know, we'd hung out, we'd had breakfast, lunch, that sort of thing. Um, and, and we hit off as, like, friends, you know? But, so Chris was, Chris had been talking about, like, doing a threesome or something. And um, he kept mentioning this person's first name. Um, so, you know, I, I agreed to it. Chris had me, like, tied up in the living room. And when this person came around the corner into the room, it was not, it wasn't him, it was somebody else. The man who entered the room was not the man Chris met and befriended on the Hudson. It was somebody I didn't know. And he looked really fucked up. Like he was, his eyes were bloodshot. His face was like somewhere between like stoned and predatory. Uh, he, he grabbed my head and he forced me down onto him. And I, I couldn't get away. Chris didn't even try to help Eric. And he just sort of sat there watching for a while. I didn't accept that it happened until maybe a year later. 
it's a really it's a really hard memory to 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 dwell on and to connect to others. I kept trying to make excuses in my head for these sorts of things. I kept trying to get him to help me make these excuses by asking him questions about why he was doing things and what was going on. And in my head, I was trying to make it work, but I didn't realize that it was unworkable. Um, I didn't have the perspective to know what was happening to me. I mean, he, he was my first relationship. I didn't know how they went. Late September, you know, he was going through some sort of episode. So I tried to convince him to, to um, let me drive him down to see some friends because he'd been stressed out and depressed. And about halfway through the drive, he, uh, he starts freaking out in a way that's really scary. There, there are tremors. Um, he starts getting angry and sad at the same time starts talking about how he wants to end uh, himself. He keeps demanding I take him to the psychiatric hospital, uh, so I do. He calls me the next day. He tells me that, uh, that he's been using meth the entire time, that that's what the parties were about. You know, and, and things clicked into place for me, like I realized where his money was going, the mood swings made sense, the loss of appetite made sense, the insomnia made sense. In order to live with me, he had to sign as a co-lessee, so technically it was also his apartment, and he had a key. I tried to avoid being home as much as possible, and whenever I was home, I would uh, lock the door to the bedroom I, I used to have to myself. It was the it was the most it was the worst way I've ever lived in my entire life. Eventually, Eric found another place with a friend. I told him I was taking everything and leaving, and I moved. I I only moved like a block away though because I didn't have a car. I had to be able to walk to you know my graduate school. And I basically moved slightly away from him in the same neighborhood. It's close enough that I see his car all the time, so I change my walking route every day to avoid seeing his car, to avoid seeing him. I built another profile on the same app that we had met on. I didn't put my face on it, I just wanted to have something up there to know where he was because it was a location-based app. When Eric returned to the app, he found unsettling images on Chris's profile. Yeah, it's hard not to recognize your own hands, your own feet. It's hard not to recognize your, your back. Chris was using these images of Eric bound up to advertise his services. He's trying to demonstrate his, like, rope work, what he's done. He's trying to prove that he actually has done something. It's a way to entice other people to interact with him, maybe invite him to another meth party. 
I feel used. Um, I'm angry. And the worst is I feel threatened. I know he's taken pictures of me before. I didn't know he'd taken pictures of me like that. So there's this implicit threat to these pictures that there are more somewhere that he could release. Because I don't trust him to have deleted them. In a sense, I, I don't care about the ones that don't show my face. I do care about them in that they are essentially a warning. They're like a blip on the seismograph. It's like an indicator that something else is there. What matters is if he has a picture that's not cropped or something explicit is happening. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like this is basically a horror movie because the unseen threat, the, the monster you do not see is worse than the monster that like is revealed. And that, that looming sense of when will this go wrong has, has infected every other relationship I've had with every other man I've, I've been involved with. Uh, I thought I could just like drive away and leave this thing behind. It's, it's, it doesn't matter how far away I am. I tried to get those images taken down from the app, but I was told unless I owned the images, I couldn't request them to be taken down, even if they were of me. I email customer service. I tell them that these images are of me. I want them taken down. And they, they demand that I produce the original files of them to prove that I own them somehow, like watermarked or something. And I don't have that. You know, these are pictures I didn't know were being taken of me, pictures I didn't consent to. So there's nothing I can do. I mean, I cite, like, case law at them about how you, you can't keep images up of someone who didn't sign a release or didn't consent to having them taken if they want them taken down. And then customer service just goes ghost on me. They don't answer. I get the free speech angle of this. We shouldn't have something that allows people who've been involved in like public corruption, criminal activity, or whatever. We shouldn't let that kind of thing go. That should be part of the public record. But I don't know how one puts together a legal apparatus that distinguishes between you know, the right of a private citizen to not have compromising images of themselves online versus uh, a public official who, you know, misappropriates funds or, or whatever. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to slice the law thin enough to keep those two things separate. Like if I had a legal right to remove pictures of myself from the internet, I'd feel a lot more comfortable just living. Um, and if, if that were something that were understood in the broader context of American life, I think we'd go a long way to preventing this sort of thing from being a widespread problem in the first place.
because if it's recognized that people who have had pictures of them uh, posted without their consent online are actually the victims of, of some kind of uh, crime or violation, then I think that this will have far less power and people can just live The Congress of Neurons in my head is constantly arguing about what is important and how I should feel about things. Everything I do subtly changes my neurology. I'm building new memories, I'm creating new connections, I'm reinforcing some pathways and killing some others. Do you have any questions or last words or anything that you you feel like you want to say? One of the only things that kept me sane during this period was having headphones on basically at all times. So I, I guess like, I guess this is both me trying to connect with that world that I was trying to become a part of just through listening, but also trying to give back to it. A big thank you to Eric for sharing his story. There's no easy answer to end on here. What's remembered and what's forgotten is contentious, it's dramatic, it's the reason I created the show. Victor Mayer Schomberger recommends introducing forgetting into our digital tools. He cited Snapchat as a model, a tool that embraces forgetting, but a few weeks after the interview with him, Snapchat introduced a new feature, Memories, which lets you save your snaps for posterity. It remains to be seen how effective the right to be forgotten will be in Europe, but people like Chrissy Chambers have fought to make revenge porn a crime in the UK. The debate over what to do in the US continues since the right to be forgotten is not available here, and the Intimate Privacy Protection Act has only recently been introduced by Representative Jackie Speer to criminalize revenge porn. As for now, To deal with the internet's relentless memory, we can create fiction to disown the past, as Frank Ahern did in part two, or we can speak our truth and accept the past, as Eric did in today's episode. Since we are our memories, we should be able to curate them 
to share them as our story or to forget them and leave room for transformation instead of leaving the ephemera of our lives open to harassment, misinterpretation, or fodder for a story told by others. I hope this series creates a conversation, and I'd love to hear from you about a time when the past resurfaced or never went away thanks to the internet. What story did you tell, fact or fiction, to own your past? We have a number for you to leave a message, 614-636-6798 or 614-MEMORY8. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed The Right to Oblivion, please let us know with a review on iTunes. We'll be continuing the conversation in our newsletter, so please subscribe on our website, memorymotel.audio, where you'll also find links related to the episode, which was produced by me, Terrence Mickey, and Bart Walshaw, who composed the theme music with production assistance from Carrie Ann Thomas, Carson Briggs Frame, and Samira Tazari. Please get in touch with us on Twitter at Memory Motel or Terrence underscore Mickey. And until next time, I can't wait to see what you find when you go back.